Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Good morning and welcome to Raising the Bar, the Law Talk Radio Show. This is Colleen Quinn, your host. I'm an attorney at Locke & Quinn. Our offices are conveniently located at Willow Lawn, where you can come get uh, your dining uh, experiences uh, via a plethora of various restaurants. We just had the Chopped at it lately. Um, And we, of course, we have the Chipotle right next door. And then we, of course, have the Chick-fil-A just a couple doors over. So come get your legal services um, in employment law, personal injury, family law, estate planning, um, and a variety of other personal services um, while you also can dine to your absolute delight in the Willow Lawn area at Locke and Quinn. So today we are going to talk about medical mishaps. My doctor screwed up and I don't have a case. Really? There's so many misconceptions around medical treatment and when somebody does or does not have a claim. And if you uh, have a question for us today, please call in at 804-454-1366 with your questions with regarding to medical mishaps and medical malpractice this morning. Remember that Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show brings you an interesting dynamic topic every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Please be sure to tune into the show. And if you miss the show, remember that we are on Facebook Live and the videos are recorded there. We also now have the podcast up on iTunes so you can subscribe to the series Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show. And of course, remember that not everyone has access to legal services and to the law. Sometimes lawyers can be expensive. And so on the Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show uh, webpage, we have posted all of the free and lower cost legal services that are available throughout Virginia uh, to Virginia citizens um, with regard to various legal um, areas, including services for veterans and folks with disabilities and just a variety of different um, services that are available out there. So joining me this morning, of course, is my uh, very pleasant uh, associate, Katie Kitts-Dean, and uh, she will be uh, prompting me with questions mm-hmm. with regard to medical malpractice. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Colleen. So um, today we are going to talk about medical malpractice cases. At Lock and Quinn, we do handle these cases, but it is very, very rare that you find a case that actually has merit to mm-hmm. take forward. So we screen quite a number of cases um, that come through before we actually um, find one that is worthy of, of uh, taking forward. So, um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, right? There absolutely are. So um, let's get started. Can you explain to our listeners um, what are the basic elements of a medical malpractice case? So just like personal injury cases, you pretty much, I hold up the three fingers and I say, you've got to have liability, you have to have damages, 
And then you have to be able to collect one, mm-hmm. two, three. Those are the the, the three big fingers. Um, and then, of course, I'll, oftentimes I'll turn those fingers upside down and say the collection part mm-hmm. is really sometimes the most important part we have to look to first because if you're not going to be able to collect anything for a, a client, then if there's liability and there are damages, it's, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to be able to take that case forward. So I always reverse the order on those. And then um, with medical malpractice cases, the liability becomes a lot trickier um, because it's not like somebody just ran a red light and caused a car accident. You have to show um, both negligence by the medical provider and that that negligence was then the proximate cause of the injury. Um, And that becomes a lot harder to show when there's like complications from a surgery Mm -hmm. or something like that. It's just... Med mal cases tend to be a lot more complicated than your, you know, your average motor vehicle accident case. Right. Um, and on that liability piece, I mean, there's kind of extra steps that you have to take um, when you're even starting to bring the case, right? Um, yes, absolutely. So um, generally, before you can uh, serve the lawsuit, not necessarily before you file it, but before you serve it in Virginia, you have to have an expert certification um, in your back pocket or in your file. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and what that means is, is that you need to have a certification um, by another expert that's in the same area of practice. So, for example, if it's a plastic surgery case, then you and the plastic surgeon screwed up, then you need to have another plastic surgeon um, basically say that that first plastic surgeon um, violated the medical standard of care for plastic surgeons in that area mm-hmm. of practice. Same thing if you had a, um, a, a, a internal medicine doctor or an emergency room doctor or um, an orthopedic surgeon, you would have to go get an uh, ex- expert in that particular field mm-hmm to sign a certification that based on their review of the facts and the medical records, et cetera, that they find that that doctor violated the standard of care. And you have to do it for nurses and other health professionals as well. Right. So you talked about collection being uh, one of you know the big factors you have to consider, um, but most medical providers have malpractice insurance, so why would there be any issues with collection? Well, and and that's a great question because you would think medical malpractice insurance would cover, but then we run into these situations where if the act was intentional, and so if you have like an intentional sexual assault, um, then the medical malpractice will say, well, that's not under our coverage. We're not Mm going to cover that. And you get into these uh, gray areas where, so I had a psychiatrist, I've had a number of these psychiatrist cases, uh, Katie, which is really mm-hmm. bizarre, but where, the, where there's this impulse to touch breasts. Um, I, I, don't, I don't quite get why I've had such a slew of these cases. Um, but we had this one case against this one doctor who actually was giving money to his uh, patients. And as part of it, um, he, um, he would fondled their breasts. And it was really bizarre because it ended up, uh, there ended up being at least 15 women that we became aware of. So, and of course, complaints were filed with the Board of Health Professionals and eventually he lost his license. Well, we were trying to collect for 
uh, one uh, gal that had been subject to, and you know, I mean, you go to a psychiatrist because you're you're vulnerable, you're looking for counseling, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you know what happens is when when you have these types of cases, it just kind of messes folks up even more, unfortunately. Well, in this particular case, this doctor, because of the prior complaints, already had lost his license, already um, had stopped practicing, of course, mm-hmm. since he lost his license. And um, the malpractice wasn't insurance wasn't covering because um, he uh, uh, it was an intentional act, mm-hmm. and so when we went to try to collect, there really was no nothing to collect from. Mm-hmm. So we were able to dip into his personal assets to some extent to get a small recovery, but in that case, um, you know, you would you would think okay. There should be coverage, but in that case, there wasn't. Right. We also um, have had um, uh, other cases where you find that the doctor um, might have done an intentional act. And then when we look at the assets, um, his personal assets um, might be all tied up with a spouse. So, so, even, so yeah. If so you're if, trying to go if you're after trying to go after assets, then you're you're not able to. And it could be that when you actually look at the physician practice, that it's leveraged to the hilt with um, credit card debt and um, back rent and stuff like that. And so you would think that in these cases, of course, uh, you'd have deep pockets with doctors, but not necessarily in right. all those cases. Right. So um, basically. Uh, we've talked a little bit about um, we talked a little bit about the psychiatrist case. Um, you know, in those cases too, one of the first things that happens is that they go before the board of health professionals mm-hmm. or the board of medicine, depending on the, the level of practice. And if they uh, go before one of those boards and then they lose their license, um, the timing of bringing a case becomes really critical mm-hmm. because, you know, first of all, if they go before the board and they and they and the act is kind of deemed intentional, now the malpractice carrier is going to deny coverage. And then if they lose their license, well, now they're out of practice. And so in these cases... If you you have to kind of bring them fast, right? You know? So that there's money to get, <laughs> right? Right. So that you can you can you can get them the mm-hmm. go after the money, right? So getting back to sort of this issue of breaching the standard of care, which you said you have to have you know an expert certifying you know when you're bringing a case that there was a standard of care that was breached. Um, how do you sort of suss out this issue of when is it just a health professional that wasn't very good versus somebody that breached the standard of care, um, and you can actually bring a suit against them. Right. So there are a lot of cases where folks um, find that a medical provider may just not have a good bedside manner, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, and there, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I personally have had fabulous doctors and um, health professionals, but it's just like lawyers. Occasionally you get a bad apple in the bunch, you know? And so um, there occasionally are professionals out there that... Um, they're just not as they don't they're not as friendly. They're just mm-hmm. not quite as good. So we do get a lot of calls at Lock and Quinn um, where somebody's just not happy with the way that their doctor has has treated them. Mm-hmm. They're not responsive in returning calls. Um, they they feel like they don't spend enough time with them when they go to the visits. Um, they there are just various complaints mm-hmm. about the level of care. They don't explain things well. Well, that's not malpractice. That's just basically not really being the best 
medical professionals. Yeah. That, 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 bad that, customer that, service. Bad customer <laughs> service, exactly. Um, and then you get cases too um, where the doctor might actually have um, messed up, um, but it's... So, for example, you go for surgery. Well, there are a lot of different um, possible risks of surgery. So you could have a risk of surgery, including some other body part being nicked during a laparoscopy or something that wasn't supposed to be nicked, but it's also a known risk that that could be Mm -hmm. nicked during that surgery. Um, And you also have risks of certain side effects after the surgery, um, of urinary retention or um, various things that can go Mm -hmm. wrong from that surgery. So the mere fact that that might happen, the nick might happen, the um, the urinary retention might happen, mm-hmm. um, you know, due to the anesthesia or the catheter or whatever. Um, those are ex- those are risks that are known mm-hmm. that they could happen. So the mere fact that the doctor did accidentally nick the bowel or something or nick a, a, a kidney or nick a part that wasn't supposed to be nicked. That in and of itself is not malpractice. However, the failure to then identify, mm-hmm. you know, via whatever the symptoms were that the person had, um, then, then that can be the malpractice where they fail to diagnose and treat mm-hmm. for a risk that, something that went wrong. Right, for something that went wrong, but that it was known that that could potentially have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. So we actually had a wrongful death case where the woman went in for a laparoscopic procedure. And she did have her her bowel nicked mm-hmm. accidentally, um, and uh, basically, when we when we took the case, um, the general surgeon that went in and ultimately repaired the um, the nicked bowel, um, he basically felt like um, the size of the the cut mm-hmm. was so big that um, it shouldn't have happened in the first place. Went beyond the risk. Right, it went beyond the mm-hmm. risk because he said it was the size of a of a gunshot wound. Yeah. I mean, it was it was big and it should have been discovered at the time of surgery. And so we um, inherited the case and, and, and at the time, sometimes when you inherit cases, mm-hmm. you, you, you inherit them with the theories that are already in place. And so we went forward on that case actually to trial mm-hmm. um, on the theory that the, uh, the cut of the bowel never should have happened in the surgery, especially because it was so big and it should have been caught at the time of surgery. And we were within, so in any of these cases, you have to identify your experts on the plaintiff's side at least three months before mm-hmm. the trial, okay? So we basically identified all of our experts and said that this this never should have happened, et cetera. Well, we, after we identified our experts, the general surgeon that had gone in and done the bowel, done the repair, um, he pointed out that really, the malpractice was um, not only the cut itself because it was so large, but then it was the failure to diagnose afterwards because the poor woman was admitted to the hospital and, by the same doctor who did not have an emergency room doctor look at her, did not go to see her until um, sometime later, and she had already become septic mm-hmm. because what happens is because of the nick, the fecal matter from the bowel leaked into her um, abdominal area, mm-hmm. and she became incredibly, incredibly sick. Well, because he did not go see her at the hospital right away, and he did not have an emergency room doctor check on her right away, we actually um, were not able to bring that theory originally in the case because we were too late. Mm-hmm. We didn't dis- we didn't really process that theory until 
um, within that three months. So we, we go to trial, we get a hung jury. It was the best thing that could happen because we, could, we got to bring the case again on the better theory. Right. And unfortunately, because sepsis can kick in so fast, mm-hmm. she, she died. She didn't make it. Um, and that, that could have been prevented had she been seen right away properly and given the proper protocols and put on the right um, antibiotics mm-hmm. and other medications, which would have pre- prevented the sepsis. And also in identifying that she was septic, they would have identified that something happened during the surgery and then the bowel repair would have happened mm-hmm. a lot sooner rather than a day and a half later, um, which was really too late for her. So that's your classic case where, um, you know, in that case, we had both theories, mm-hmm. which was that, um, yes, there was a risk of her bowel being nicked, but not that to that extent, right. okay? Because that's a huge fecal leak now. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we also had the theory that, okay, that's a risk of surgery, but because it's a known risk, you've got to watch that patient afterwards. And if they start having signs of um, swelling and their temperature changes and their heartbeats changing, and you've got all the different signs that are showing that there's definitely something wrong with that person, then you've got to monitor the and make sure that you you know they get the right follow-up care. Absolutely. So um, in these cases, you know, we've said you have to have a doctor to certify that the standard of care was breached. Is that sometimes hard to do to find these other doctors to, you know, sign off on a case and say, yes, you know, this this other doctor in my field um, did something that was so bad it was malpractice? Yeah, it is, especially finding local doctors because, you know, a lot of doctors don't want to, they, they know these doctors, mm-hmm. they they run in the same circles, they run to the, they are in the same medical society or whatever, and so they don't necessarily want to testify against another doctor. Um, so in these cases, when you have a local doctor willing to sign an expert witness certification against another local doctor, well, that's just that kind of shows you the strength of the case because yeah. that's one doctor saying, "Wow, this was so egregious that." I'm willing to sign off on another local doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you have in a lot of the cases is you will typically end up having to look for experts outside of the the local area. Mm-hmm. In, f- in fact, sometimes you have to even look for them in, in, in another state. But then you have to make sure that they... Um, uh, have a license in Virginia, ideally, even if they are in another state. Maybe they're in D.C., but they're mm-hmm. also licensed in Virginia as well so that um, they're able to... Um, able to testify sufficiently and, and know the Virginia's, you know, standard of, of medical care. Right. Yeah. But when you can find a local doctor, I mean, that's an indication that it was really bad and they don't want this person in their circle, I guess, of, of their profession. Yeah. I mean, just like lawyers, um, you know, when we have another lawyer commit legal malpractice, we don't want that happening. And so doctors, they, they mm-hmm. want to police their own too, to some extent, and make sure that they weed out the bad apples and that there aren't folks out there practicing that are, you know, committing wrongs, right. et cetera. So yeah, when you do find a one local doctor willing to testify against another, that that's definitely shows you the strength of your, your case to some extent. Right. So when clients call in, um, they think they have a medical malpractice claim, um, want to talk to a lawyer about it. What are some of the first things that they really need to understand? Well, the the first thing is explaining to them, we've got liability, Mm -hmm. damages, collection. Mm -hmm. um, And also, we can't really even start to look at your case until you gather up all of your medical records. Mm -hmm. 
And we really need them to gather up their medical records because when lawyers ask for medical records and suddenly red flags go up, it's <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you just, uh, I've seen funny things happen. Um, I, I've seen uh, medical records disappear. I've seen medical records um, change. In that one case that I mentioned with the laparoscopic procedure with the Nick Bow, we had three different operative reports that we ultimately uncovered. Oh, wow. Yeah, with, um, uh, with uh, different handwritten na- annotations put on the operative report, including changing the size of the, um, of, of the cut, the cut oh, wow. area. So it was, it was several different sizes <laughs> written in there. And so you see these funny things with medical records and you see funny things happen when lawyers ask for medical records. So we always tell the clients, the, the, the potential client, look at, you need to go and you need to gather up all of your medical records, which they should have anyway, because if they're going for any subsequent treatment, then they'll have all their records for that next doctor to be able to see. Mm-hmm. And they're entitled to get their records. Right. You know, they're entitled to get their full uh, records. Um, I mean, everybody should have their medical records, really. And not just the ones that they hand you when, you, when you're discharged or whatever, because those are just instructions. They're not really your medical records. Mm-hmm. So we tell people, you need to go ahead and you need to gather up all of your medical records so that we can see what's, what's in those medical records. Um, and then we pretty much have to do a lot of research on that particular area of medicine to look at what could possibly be all the different um, complications. And when we, you, we just looked at a case this week, you know, where mm-hmm. um, the woman had um, a laparoscopic procedure a number of years ago, three years ago, and now she has a kidney that doesn't function. Um, one of her kidneys she's lost. Mm-hmm. And one of the doctors mentioned it was possible something could have happened during that laparoscopic procedure three years ago. Well, we looked and you know that there are so many different ways in which a kidney can malfunction. And now trying to say that it was because of that laparoscopic procedure three years ago, as opposed to the 49 other reasons why Mm -hmm. that kidney might be not functioning now, that's just going to be an impossible task. Mm -hmm. Um, But at a minimum, if we can look at the medical records, we can then kind of sort out, well, what are the other symptoms that person has that could possibly have caused the kidney failure as opposed to a nick from that laparoscopic Mm -hmm. procedure? And were there consistent complaints from the time of that procedure forward that would have suggested that that happened during the procedure or not? And if they're not consistent complaints in the medical records, well, then that's going to tell us that's just going to be too difficult to try to prove that case. So gathering up those medical records um, is the very first thing. And then I tell folks the second thing is, have you gone for a second opinion? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, you, you think that your knee replacement or you think that your um, shoulder replacement um, was done wrong well, did you go for a second opinion? Have you gotten another doctor to say what's going on with you that maybe the implant is too big or the implant's too small or no, these symptoms are actually symptoms that you could probably expect you mm-hmm. know, with the procedure having been done perfectly right. So a, a lot of folks, they'll call and they'll be second guessing their doctor and I'm like, well, we're, we're lawyers, you, right. know? <laughs> we're, you know, go see another doctor and right. get another opinion. Um, and this is not black and white either. So you might have to get a third opinion too. Mm-hmm. And um, remember today's uh, show, we are talking about medical mal- mishaps and um, the, the issue of, okay, a, a medical provider can screw up, but you may not necessarily have a malpractice case. So we are going to cut to the break here shortly. And if you um, have any questions, please call us into the show at 
1366. Um, everybody is affected by medical treatment, right. and um, most of us at one time or another um, have a mishap with some treatments. Mm-hmm. So please be sure to call in. been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Now back to Raising the Bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. We are back to Raising the Bar, the Law Talk Radio Show. This is attorney Colleen Quinn of Locke and Quinn, and with me is Katie Kitzstein. Today we are talking about medical mishaps. My doctor screwed up and I don't have a case, really? So we get so many of these calls um, in the office and it's so difficult to sift through them and determine when there really is a valid medical malpractice uh, claim. If you have any questions, call us at 804 454 1366. We've got another half hour of the show talking about this topic and we'd love to take your call. Absolutely. So before we took the break, um, you were talking about a call we had from someone who had a complaint about a surgery that happened three years ago, um, which brings up an interesting point. What are the time limits on um, making, um, bringing these claims? Great question. Um, Of course, the time limit is the general two-year statute of limitations Mm -hmm. in Virginia. Now, it can be different in other states. But when that time limit starts is the big question. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily from when the um, negligence occurred or when the mistake occurred. Um, But if the physician or that medical provider continues to treat that Mm -hmm. patient, then that period extends the time. So then you look at, okay, when was the last date of treatment? And then you can start the count from mm-hmm. there for the two years. Um, and then there are other tolling um, things that can come up. Right. Um, so you're always kind of looking for, are there any other exceptions as well? I think if you like find a sponge in someone, but they don't know until later. <laughs> exactly. So you've got, you've got those um, inability to, to identify right. it type cases, which can also extend that two years. So we've got a call from Stort from Chesterfield. Good morning, Stort. You are on the air. How are you doing? I'm doing um, great. I was in a bike wreck several years ago, and I got a contusion on my intestines, and then uh, later on it was diagnosed as Crohn's. Um, I switched doctors because I wasn't real confident in this other gastrologist for a while, and then uh, he confirmed that I had Crohn's, and he put me on Humira. My concern was I have a form of muscular sclerosis called CMT type 1A, and it's a neuropathy condition affecting the myelin sheathing around my nerve endings and my intrinsic muscle areas. 
Wow, you have a lot so, going on there, Stuart. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, I, I brought this concern to his attention, and I said, hey, is this Humira stuff going to adversely affect my, my condition? He says, well, let me look into it, because he wasn't familiar with the CMT type 1A. So I was called back about three weeks later to go in to learn how to give myself the injections. Um, and this is after trying a couple rounds of prednisone and going through two doctors for about a year and this, that, and the other. And I uh, come back in, and his nurse practitioner is there, and she's teaching me how to give myself the injections of Humira. Um, and I asked her, I said, well, is there any problem? Is there going to be any problem, you know, with the CMT type 1A? And she looked at me, and she said, what's that? I said, well, the doctor was supposed to be looking into this um, and getting back to me this condition that I have. She says, well, let me go talk to him. So she popped out of the room for about maybe five minutes and then pops back in and says, no, nah. he says, everything should be fine. So I started taking the Humira, and it literally tore me apart. And I kept telling him, you know, I don't feel right. Something's wrong. I'm not getting, you know, he says, well, your body's just getting acclimated to it. It did nothing for my symptoms of Crohn's at all. Um, it just took me in a downward spiral. And uh, I ended up having surgery last year. And they took out what was appeared to be the contusion, along with about a close to a foot of colon and some lower intestine, about a foot and a half of that. And since holy then, cow, you've got a lot, uh, lot going on there. Yeah, I've made a miraculous recovery. I mean, I was yeah. down to 113 pounds from 170. So, Stuart, what is what is the medical negligence question that you're you're getting to? Well, I, I started researching on the Humera, and it turns out there's a. a I had to dig quite a bit, and I got some information from a pharmacist finally. And it says right there in the in the Humera that I forget what the medical name for the albumin or something like that. It says that may adversely affect people with muscular sclerosis and may cause diminutization of the myelin sheathing. So which have is the you? That I've got. Right. So did you go back and did you talk to your doctor and the nurse practitioner about that then? Um, not really. At that point, I just kind of kept my mouth shut. Well, you should. I, you should I go. Was... You should go back. So I'll, I'll tell you this: the first thing you did right was you listened to your body. I always tell people, listen to your body. The second thing you absolutely did right was you questioned, and and when you switch, when you have somebody else like a nurse practitioner. Um, that you're seeing and you'd seen the doctor before, your continuity of care is now interrupted and you did the absolute right thing by mm-hmm. by making sure that you asked the, the, the questions again um, to look into it. Um, and then re- remember that that the you know, medical providers, they are constantly encountering new medications. They're not always 100% familiar with them. Um, so I always say, go back to that doctor and ask questions. Ask why were you prescribed that when those were the known side effects, et cetera, because sometimes you'll get answers that you may not have otherwise mm-hmm. thought that you would get. Um, but I would definitely go back and, and ask the doctor and the nurse practitioner and tell them, um, what you what you researched and also what happened, um, so that you, so that you basically um, put them on the on the spot about mm-hmm. it um, in that regard. So um, thank. Well, was there? I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to get me anywhere. I've since uh, been referred by him to another doctor um, out of Charlottesville, and I'm going to see him now. And I'm much more satisfied with him. He's very precautious about my situation after I explained everything that went on. And he always tells me now to go check with my neurologist 
Good, good. Um, before they, and I'm doing all herbals right now. I'm not on anything. Well, good for and you. And I'm doing a hundred percent better. Well, um, you know, sometimes you know, I had to learn how to walk again. I mean, right. I felt bad again. Well, sometimes you know, a certain doctors don't get it right, and then you have to keep looking for one that you're comfortable with. And you did exactly yeah. that. You did exactly the right things. But you know, I would not um, just for your own um, satisfaction. I would not necessarily just let it go. Um, I would write a letter or uh, go see that other doctor and basically say, you know, this didn't work because that that doctor needs to learn that Mm -hmm. maybe that wasn't the right medication. Thank you so much for calling into the show, Stuart. Really appreciate it. And I am, do I have a case? Um, Um, you know, I, I can't tell you that you have a case because, um, without doing the medical research myself, I would want to look into that. But one thing that I would note is that your damages are very limited. Although you had a horrible period of time, you are now recovered. And so, um, because that to trying to quantify that period in which you were uncomfortable, um, as uh, it was beyond, I almost died on the operating table. Yeah. Okay? It was beyond uncomfortable. So it's possible that you might have a case, but it's one of those things where I would first say, go get all your medical records, gather them up, and then we would be more than happy to take a look at your medical records and fig- and determine the extent of damage that we might be able to claim um, for having been put on that medication. So gather up your medical records, and if you want to drop by Locke and Quinn, we'd be more than happy to look at them for you, Stuart. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. So um, just like Stuart um, mentioned in his case, Mm -hmm. you know, with with the um, liability, you know, sometimes you can be prescribed a a bad medication or sometimes the doctor can completely screw up, Mm -hmm. but then we have to make sure that there are sufficient damages. So um, in in, uh, one case I had, um, actually one of my best friends had a mammogram done and uh, uh, we, about three months, six months later, she discovered she was doing a self-breast exam and she discovered a lump in mm-hmm. her breast. And um, so then she went and she had the mammogram done again. And there was a very, very clear um, cancerous tumor in her breast. And when they went back and they looked at that mammogram, mammogram done six months earlier, that very clear Um, cancerous tumor was on that Mm -hmm. mammogram done earlier. The problem was is that the tumor in size was, it had grown, um, but it was was of such a size that whether they caught it six months earlier or whether they caught it when she caught it herself on self-exam, she still had to have, um, she still had to have a mastectomy and have that breast removed. So the damage was the same um, and we really couldn't say that because of six months had gone by, um, y- you know, before she had to have the breast removed, that there was any increase in her damages. Although right. there was a very, very clear mistake. Right. The radiologist completely missed seeing that on the mammogram. Mm-hmm. So clear negligence, clear mistake. But in another case, maybe that would have caused enough damage to bring a malpractice case. But in right. this one, where she ended up at the end of it was not any different than. Right. Right. Yeah. So if it had been like a smaller tumor that could have been caught that could have been removed without removing the entire breast. Right. You know, then that might have been a, a case where we could have claimed had they caught it, she wouldn't have had to have the, you know, the full mastectomy. Um, but in this case, it was so large in the, in the one that they missed, she was going to have to have the full mastectomy anyway. So the damages were the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're always looking at cases and, and saying, okay, well, we have to have all of the elements line up. We have to have the, the mistake 
we have to have the proximate cause that mm-hmm. led to the the now the injuries. The injuries have to be severe, and now we have to know that we can also collect um, against that medical provider. Yep. So, is there a difference if the medical mishap happens at a public hospital um, versus when it happens at a private hospital? Oh yes, <laughs> and we we learned that one. Um, Oh, by very painful experience, mm-hmm. um, because we took a case all the way up to the Virginia Supreme Court on on this. And so basically, uh, public hospitals like um, MCV, mm-hmm. um, UVA to some extent, uh, they can claim uh, basically sovereign immunity because they are funded by the state. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that you can't invade the public purse. That's the concept of sovereign immunity. So that um, so that when you go to those hospitals, it means that um, if the doctors are rendering routine care, et cetera, um, they can claim sovereign immunity if there is a screw-up. So you're limited under the Virginia Tort Claims Act to the extent of your of your remedies. Mm-hmm. And that, in the case that we took all the way up to the Virginia Supreme Court, what happened in that case, um, which is the, the Doug Pike case, and it's a published opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, basically what happened was he went in for a procedure to essentially repair a hole in his throat. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had to remove um, uh, uh, basically a... Um, um, a vein in his arm in order to help with the blood flow and in order to help repair this hole that was in his throat. And so it was really, really important that he um, not have um, any venous compromise. Mm-hmm. That is that uh, the blood flow remained really steady um, through his neck area. And so it was really important that his head be kind of kept upright after the surgery. And this was an exceedingly long surgery, so very complicated long surgery. And what happened was the uh, the nursing staff in that case apparently allowed his head to flop over so that the the blood flow was compromised. Mm-hmm. And not just once, but but apparently twice, according to the medical records. Um, so we, we brought that case against um, the nurse in that case. And uh, basically, it came down to there's, and without getting into all the various legalities, because you can get really complicated and that could get really boring, actually. Um, <laughs> but without getting into all the technicalities and the legalese, et cetera, um, the bottom line is uh, it, it came down to a level of, of how much discretion did she have with regard to the medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the court essentially found that. Um, because she was just acting within the normal course of, of her job duties um, and her job uh, didn't require a whole lot of uh, it was discretionary factors and there are other things that go mm-hmm. into the analysis. But the bottom line was is that she was entitled to claim immunity, sovereign immunity. And so um, under those cases, you're limited to under the Virginia Tort Claims Act, um, the, the recovery there. Um, which is much, much more limited mm-hmm. than if you were able to bring the case against a, a private hospital. So if so, I, basically in that case, what it shows you is if you're going to go get medical treatment, you're better off going to a private hospital because if the same nurse at a private hospital did the same thing, you could recover. So you could have gone forward. Right, yeah. and you could recover up to $2 million mm-hmm. in, in in damages and not be limited in your recovery. Um, so... 
that's a, when people go for medical care, they don't necessarily think about, am I going to a private hospital or a public hospital? And if something, a mishap's going to happen, is my recovery going to be limited in mm-hmm. that regard? And so you can, you can read the, the, Doug Pike case is yeah. out there, um, but unfortunately, um, we 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 lost that case, and yeah. it taught us a good lesson in terms of. I always tell people just go to a private hospital and go for a private. Seriously, hospital. yeah. <laughs> Um, so you talked about this a little bit already, um, but um, I know this this is just something that comes up all the time in our calls. What if the doctor screws up and cuts something during surgery that was not supposed to be cut? Yeah, and as we talked about before, sometimes that's a risk of the surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, so really it becomes: um, do they catch it? Mm-hmm. Right? Do they catch it at the time of surgery? If they catch it at the time of surgery, it's clearly not malpractice. Okay, they caught it, they repaired it. It was it was a possibility that could happen. Right. If they catch it shortly after the surgery, um, even if the person gets a little bit sick, mm-hmm. um, it's still not malpractice because they've they've essentially caught it. Um, but if they don't catch it and the person gets really, really, really sick, you know, and ends up hospitalized for sepsis. Um, and, you know, we have we have a, a case where the woman even uh, coded um, in, and almost died and, you know, ended up vomiting into her lungs and now having scarred lung tissue, et cetera. So um, then you do have a case because right. it's like, okay, if you're supposed to catch it right away, you're supposed right. to be looking for the, those possible risks of surgery right after surgery um, and monitoring the patient. So, you know, a lot of really good doctors, um, but my oral surgeon, after I had oral surgery, I mean, he's calling me that mm-hmm. night. He's calling me the next day. He's checking on me and saying, you know, give me your symptoms, tell me how you're doing, et cetera. That is a good doctor. That's good patient care. Mm-hmm. Um, when the patient, on the other hand, or the patient's husband or the patient's mother or whatever is calling the doctor and saying, look, at this doesn't seem right and that doesn't seem right. And the doctor's like, oh, it's fine, oh, it's fine, oh, it's fine. And don't bring them back in to take a look at them. That's not so good patient care, which right. could lead to potential malpractice mm-hmm. if, it, if it continues and there really is something wrong with the person. Absolutely. The other thing is, um, remember when Stort called in, um, we do have a lot of medication mix-up cases mm-hmm. that I've seen. Um, and, you know, other people like pharmacists and um, nurses and psychiatrists and psychologists, I mean, all of those fall within the medical profession and um, even salon and spa um, mm-hmm. cases that are monitored by um, doctors. So um, in some of these medication mix-up cases, we've had ones where the medication's been mixed up and the person um, has maybe felt just a little bit ill for a day and then realized the mix-up, okay? Well, that's clearly a mix-up, but the, but the damage is so minimal mm-hmm. And then we've had other medication mix-up cases where it's like really severe. We had one woman who was prescribed Holodol, which is like a psychotic medication, um, when it was she was just supposed to be prescribed some sort of anti-minimal antidepressant. I can't remember if it was oh, like wow. Xanax or Prozac or something. But anyway, the Holodol, I mean, she freaked out and her body was like stiffening up and she ended up having a complete psychotic episode and having to go by ambulance to the emergency room and having been put in a psych unit and for, you know, about three days. Okay, well now, now we have 
damages. Mm-hmm. You know, now that medication mix-up clearly resulted in something that wouldn't um, have otherwise happened. Yeah, that wouldn't have otherwise happened. And, and you know, now she's lost three days from work, mm-hmm. and she's totally freaked out. And she's even got a little bit of post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards when she goes to yeah. take any medication now because she's thinking, "Is this the right medication? Am I going to flip out, etc." So um, each each case is different because you could have a medication mix-up that results in very lim- minimal damage and you could have another one that result- results in a lot of damage. Right. You know? Um, and when, when we were talking to Stuart, you know, one thing you told him was the importance of getting your records. Right. Um, so how do you make sure that the records are what they're supposed to be? I mean, I know a lot of times we, in both our personal injury and our medical malpractice cases, see records that are just wrong right, in, in silly right. ways almost. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, most people don't realize that they have a right to go back and correct their records. You know, that if the dates are wrong, if the information is wrong, they can, they, you can go back and you have a right to say, I want my records corrected. Mm-hmm. And so, and the, the doctors are required to go ahead and make those changes. Um, so um, many folks think that medical records are just going to be perfect. Well, they're they're not. A lot of times they're dictated and nobody proofreads them. Um, they're, you know, they're written down quickly. Right. And then what happens too in the medical records now, because they're um, basically commu- computerized, is that that initial intake information gets carried throughout the medical records. So if something's wrong in the initial intake, it stays wrong. Copy, paste, right. copy, copy paste, paste, copy, copy paste, paste, exactly, yeah. you know, and so it stays wrong throughout. And so uh, go, getting your medical records is actually kind of revealing because when you read through them, occasionally you'll you'll see, oh my gosh, that's not right. Right. And, we, you know, we just had that happen th- uh, this week. Um, right and, leg, left leg. <laughs> right leg, left leg, yeah. And mm-hmm. the, the when the, the, the client looked and said, wait a minute, I, I wasn't complaining about my left leg. I was mm-hmm. complaining about my right leg. And that's just totally wrong in my in my medical records and mm-hmm. we we see that quite quite frequently so um, I tell folks not only get your medical records but then read them and make sure that there aren't any inaccuracies and if there are go back and say hey we want to get this fixed mm-hmm. um this this isn't right in my in my record um, and if for some reason it won't be fixed it at a minimum send a letter say something that this is wrong in my record um, so that if it has to be used later for any sort of litigation we mm-hmm. have some record of saying it was You're wrong trying to correct yeah, it. yeah exactly. absolutely so so when's it hard to distinguish if um, you have a medical malpractice case or a personal injury case because they can kind of blur I they think, do sometimes. they do and they especially blur in these salon and spa cases mm-hmm. and of course these hair replacement cases and whatnot so um Typically, if you have a medical doctor who is monitoring or supposed to be monitoring mm-hmm. the spa, now that has become, you know, basically supervised by a health professional. And so that falls in the area of medical malpractice. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, in some cases, there might be a, um, oh, like say a hair replacement type company, okay? Mm-hmm where they might refer to a doctor outside, but he's not necessarily supervising mm-hmm. the company. Well, now it becomes really tricky because is it medical malpractice or is this simply a retail you know, mm-hmm. s- store type thing, a service place, right. um, like a haircut place? Um, and so it, it becomes a little tricky and you kind of have to look and say, well, what's the setup of, of the place? Mm-hmm. If it's simply a haircut, hairstyle, um, makeup type place, 
um, then that's going to just be a simple premises liability case, not a medical malpractice case. But now we've got these spas and salons that are doing, okay, we're doing a little bit of Botox, okay, we're, right. we're doing a little bit of this other stuff that now requires them to be monitored by a medical doctor. And then that turns it into more of a medical malpractice case, which, um, you know, we talked about the expert certification. I was going to go back to that because... In some cases, you don't need an expert certification where it just makes darn good common sense. Like, you know, <laughs> you know that, that basically um, any average person could say, oh, that, that should not have happened. Mm-hmm. So in your more complicated cases, you will need to get that expert certification. And again, I'm paraphrasing the statute, but basically the, the statute is that, you know, un- un- unless it's just makes common good common sense mm-hmm. that um, that was a, a screw up. Right. So um, there are a certain set of cases where um, if it's so obvious, okay, they operated on the wrong leg. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't necessarily need to get, you know, an orthopedic surgeon to say that was a breach, that was of, a breach of standard of care. care. Right. And, and we tell people too, when you go in for medical care and have that body part marked, mm-hmm. like it was a magic marker and, and, and actually good medical providers will do that. They yeah. will actually mark, this is the surgical area. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's this leg and put a big circle with an L on the left knee, you know, as, yep. as opposed to not marking anything. So, and then I also tell people, always be vigilant about your care, like, you know, store, uh, listen to your body like Stuart did. And also um, make sure you've got somebody with you, having somebody with you, especially when you go into surgery or um, making sure that you ask questions mm-hmm. um, and, and that you've got somebody there helping to ask those questions, et cetera. So having somebody um, with you as kind of your, your advocate mm-hmm. is really critical for anybody getting any medical care. Absolutely. Um, so we've been talking a lot about doctors who mess up and, you know, right. might uh, get sued or have to pay claims. Um, so how would I know if my doctor has committed malpractice or been sued for malpractice or been involved in any kind of uh, malpractice litigation? Right. So if a doctor has been sued and the um, amount, um, se- the settlement amount is 10000 or more, it has to be reported um, with the Board of Medicine. So you can actually go to www vahealthprovider.com. That's www.vahealthprovider.com. And you can search by the name, location, and practice area of the doctor. And then you can go to a tab that shows the reported paid claims that have been made within the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. I always tell folks, before you go see a doctor, research them. You know, go look to that website and make sure that they don't have prior claims. Now, some of those claims might be explained by various reasons, but Mm -hmm. um, you do want to make sure that you research your doctor, that you know that they are competent, that they have adequate experience. Um, you know, and a lot of these doctors now are, are um, getting reviewed, um, mm-hmm. just like lawyers get reviewed, et cetera. Um, so you want to make sure you research that doctor. You want to make sure you're comfortable with the doctor. You want to make sure that they're giving you answers that seem logical, that they are taking adequate time uh, with you. And, um, you know, 
doctors are becoming more service-minded and there are are excellent ones that are out there. Mm -hmm. So thank you for joining us for today's show. Remember, you can capture all of the shows on Facebook Live and now on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast series, Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show. Join us next Wednesday at 9 a.m.